Welcome to ISM Fellows in Conversation, a podcast from the Yale Institute of Sacred Music. The episodes in this series present a discussion between a current ISM student and a visiting researcher in the ISM Fellows program. Each year, the Institute hosts a cohort of fellows who are in residence for one year to pursue interdisciplinary projects and teach at Yale. The following conversation focuses on the diverse research, teaching, and creative work of a current ISM fellow. Welcome to the ISM podcast where we're interviewing fellows. My name is Ben Bond. I am a third year graduating uh, student here at the ISM. I use he, they pronouns. I hail from Long Beach, California, and um, really excited to be talking with Dr. Bernard Gordillo. We have a shared love of California as he got his PhD at UC Riverside. And um, he's a fellow here, and I'm really excited to get the opportunity to uh, talk with him today and for you all to get to learn from him and his experiences. Welcome, uh, Dr. Bernard Gordillo. Thank you, Ben. Um, it is a pleasure to have an opportunity to talk about my work and a bit about my background and how the two, uh, in a way, uh, inform each other. Yeah. So go ahead and tell us, I've already kind of talked about uh, your, your time in California, but a little bit about your story, where you teach, where you're going to be teaching, and area of expertise, and of course, what brought you uh, to the ISM. So maybe I'll begin uh, with where you're from, if you like. Um, sure. Just to give you a, a sense of uh, a, found, a foundation or um, the beginnings of the dialogue that my work, the direction I'm headed in, is in some form, in a number of ways, connected to my background. I was born in Managua, Nicaragua, and I came to the U.S. when I was six uh, as a result of the Nicaraguan Revolution. My family decided that we should move, and I ended up spending the rest of my childhood in New Orleans. So I am a child of two different cultures, and I have the, a particular world view and a particular uh, immigrant story in the U.S., uh, shaped by that particular formative uh, experience. Uh, at the ISM, I have a revolving appointments in three different units, uh, School of Music, Department of Music, and Divinity School. Um, my official title is Postdoctoral Associate in Christian Music Studies. And within that, I bring to bear my expertise as a Latin Americanist. I work on music, culture, religion, and politics in Latin America and the region's historical relationship to the United States. I focus on Central America. My work pursues questions of identity and representation and is situated on relationships between constructs of modernity and nation, legacies of Spanish colonization, and the Catholic Church as both a religious and political institution. These are avenues by which I look at various aspects of um, our understanding, on, on the one hand, of a region of the world that it, we rarely talk about beyond, let's say, the border politics in the United States, perhaps um, also inserting into a greater conversation of Latin American culture and the study of Latin American culture, expressive culture in particular, that very region beginning to at least start a conversation. Let's see. What brought me to the ISM? Mm -hmm. The ISM's uh, reputation and commitment to interdisciplinary research. It's uh, well known, I think, on a global scale 
uh, that it's um, it is a place to have the kinds of conversations uh, that perhaps we don't find elsewhere. And indeed, what attracted to what attracted me to the ASM was that I wanted to center religion and the history of religious expression, religious thought, specifically in the Catholic Church, um, within my own work, within all of the projects that I have underway. And um, this, for me, was the ideal place. And it, after spending almost a year here, it most certainly has been gener- generative um, in many senses of the word. Mm-hmm. Um, my project is focused on music and Catholic liberation movements in Central America. Yeah, so you were, we were talking a bit before uh, getting a chance to record here, and you mentioned that there were three different projects that were kind of all on your, your radar, but um, I'd love to hear you dive deeper into all three or, or just one of them that's been really um, important for you here at the ISM. Um, your work is really exciting. I've gotten the chance to hear Dr. Gordillo um, speak to the ISM prior and again, it's a real privilege to hear his work on this medium. Thank you, Ben. Most recently, I gave a talk about a particular LP released in 1969 of the Nicaraguan Folk Mass. Out of the vernacular masses, the many that were created and recorded in the 1960s in light of the Second Vatican Council's, um, Mm. let's say, shift in liturgical practices. Mm -hmm. Numerous Catholic musicians uh, produced vernacular masses or masses in Spanish or indigenous languages as um, novel, innovative forms of um, religious expression. The The Nicaraguan folk mass was one of those. And so my talk um, took the LP and then contextualized it. That particular presentation came out of a particular experience that inspired a turn, a a kind of life-changing direction I had in 2011. You might remember that I, I left Nicaragua as a child in the late 70s. And uh, I did not return for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. I was the last person in my immediate family to do so for a number of reasons that I can't quite recall at this moment, but I was able to return in 2011 on a Fulbright grant to do music research on uh, a collection of manuscripts, music manuscripts, by Nicaraguan composers of the late 19th and 20th centuries. That project was, um, let's say, the foundation or the core research project. But while I was there, I started to reconnect both personally and to build professional connections that led me to a second project, very much about um, Catholic social movements in Central America. And a a cousin of mine gave me a copy of the LP of the Nicaraguan Folk Mass. It's, let's say, remarkable jacket sleeve art. Mm -hmm. And the music that it contained weren't readily understandable in the sense that I had no frames of reference to understand what I was looking at, uh, nor what I was listening to. And so I began to ask questions. I began to not only ask questions of the people who had been around when that record was produced, but who lived in that period. I also 
came across and was able to engage uh, the community members that took part, that both created and sang that mass in its early years. And at the same time, I was able to begin to understand much more deeply the country that I'd been born in and the culture that was kind of, that lay dormant for so many years. Um, That's where a kind of dialogue in between my work and my background started happening in a very intense way, in a way that I had only um, kind of echoes before that. Uh, I had questions, but nobody really had answers. It wasn't until I returned to Nicaragua that I, I could pursue answers and well, I, I was able to at least um, begin to build um, an understanding. That experience led me to do a PhD in music history and musicology at UC Riverside, where I worked with five different Latin Americanists covering all of Latin America, the Caribbean, and an Iberianist who worked on um, Spain. I was really curious. Um, you've kind of talked a bit about your personal background and how it's informed your uh, scholarship. And uh, on that note, um, focusing on the kind of the radical nature of Catholic folk mass in Nicaragua post-Vatican II once, uh, for, for listen- listeners who are not aware um Myself as a Protestant was ignorant until this particular semester when learning about the history of modern Christianity that Vatican II allowed for uh, masses to be done in the local vernacular. So I was curious, being born in Nicaragua, being um, privy to both Nicaraguan culture and American culture in New Orleans, were you growing up in in a Catholic um, home? Was that part of what inspired any interpersonal knowledge of these uh, masses and and did that inform your inspiration to pursue the scholar in in an academic sense? Growing up in the Catholic Church, I think was, most certainly was part of it, a fundamental part, I'd Mm. say, because I entered into a conversation or into research that was both familiar and unfamiliar at the same time, having been baptized and confirmed in the Catholic Church, baptized in Nicaragua, confirmed in in the United States, and having been sent to Catholic grade schools, I had an understanding of, uh, or a certain, a limited understanding, I would say, of what it meant to be Catholic, socially, historically, let's say. And once I got to Nicaragua, politically, When I entered into the subject, I didn't necessarily enter into it. Mm -hmm. Uh, As a performer, I'd spent... Uh, most of my life, uh, as a, let's say, performer researcher, mm-hmm. spent most of my life performing music that comes out of a Western Christian tradition. And for most of that period, uh, one could say uh, we're looking at a Catholic music tradition, though not necessarily. Of course, it's uh, much more broad than that. So I brought some of that understanding, yet there were also cultural and political ramifications that I had to um, confront in in researching, let's say, the vernacular masses Mm. broadly in Latin America um, and certainly contextually when we're talking about Nicaragua or Central America. And if you um, wanted folks to take away uh, part of or really uh, substantive elements of of your research, what would... um, in terms of like the Catholic mass um, would be important takeaways in terms of lyrical content or musical um, 
creativity. I, I would love to, I personally don't know a whole lot, so I'd love to hear more. And I'm sure um, folks are probably not insiders who are listening to this podcast. I think there are varied opinions about the tradition of folk expression in uh, Catholic liturgical settings. It is not unusual um, to see, let's say, Hispanic communities in the U.S., Latinx communities uh, celebrating their masses with guitars, uh, with percussion instruments, or any traditional musical instruments, um, musical style, or genre, let's say. That it wasn't that long ago that there was a dramatic shift Mm. and license allowed for those expressions. And at least with the... The communities that I've worked on, worked with, what we have to remember is what Vatican II did was to acknowledge and affirm communities that didn't feel like they were part of the institution, that they fell outside of it Mm -hmm. or were on the periphery of it. And that vernacular expressions allow these communities to, in in a way, express their entire communityhood, um, they were able to voice their love of God, their existence. We forget, or perhaps we don't talk enough about those communities who, or which, uh, continue to um, persist under structural impoverishment. These are the communities that I have researched, and their musics, um, these LPs that I that I've studied, that is the community uh, itself singing the work that they created. In contrast to other vernacular masses throughout Latin America that were primarily recording projects by composers or arrangers uh, that would later have or take on a life uh, of their own. So maybe the takeaway is that whenever you hear guitars, that is among the strongest, most impactful shifts in Catholic musical expression of the last century, at least. Mm-hmm. And it comes out of um, the different forms of acknowledgement and affirmation on the part of the Catholic Church to recognize in Latin America the wholeness of Christian communities. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear more about what the the political... I know there's a lot of political social movements like that were that were in- integrated in a lot of um, folk mass works in um, South America and Central America as a result of Vatican II. And I was curious, were they present in the, the work you studied as well, um, like workers' movements? Or um, I, I know of like uh, Rigoberto Menchu was a really big indigenous activist in Guatemala. I was curious, like what these these masses, how, how, how did they impact the communities um, and, and the countries and the culture they were a part of? You mentioned that they're really um, instrumental in giving a voice to groups that had had been on the periphery. And I would love to hear how that functioned some more. That's really amazing. I think being able to sing in your native language, being able to sing, period, um, as opposed to having somebody else sing on your behalf or uh, express prayer song on your behalf, has a particular kind of resonance so these masses allowed for a number of things that we now know uh, happened. One, they were able to be broadcast over the radio. So people who um, were perhaps not able 
uh, to attend Mass or were living in a place where they could not get to were able to at least um, celebrate it in some form. They were also transmitted orally. That's in a way how movement spread, uh, mm -hmm. not just textually. Mm -hmm. I look primarily at the 1960s and 1970s. And at least in Central America, you have lots of change happening, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Well, politically fraught uh, region of the world, especially as the Cold War played out mm -hmm. in Central America yeah. during those decades. So what we have, in a way, what I'm looking at is what happened in between Vatican II and the inception of liberation theology. If we consider the inception, the publication of liberation theology, the book by uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, among other theologians, mm -hmm. in 1971, um, though he had uttered the term in 1968 uh, at a conference in Peru, uh, or beginning to, let's say, move towards a broader formulation. Mm -hmm. The communities that I've, I've looked at are part of a movement that began in Chicago by which the first Puerto Rican migrant community formed, um, let's say, its own parish in Chicago. Out of this came a particular catechism known as the Catechism of the Family of God mm -hmm. that was used in community building, in a building family, a sense of family, and of course, as a, a form of Christian education. Uh, this catechism was taken by a particular group of priests from Chicago to Panama City in the early 1960s when the Archdiocese of Chicago uh, founded a mission there with the permission of the Archbishop of Panama. That community, known as San Miguelito, flourished in what we understand now to be what, what the catechism and the way I interpret it to have been was uh, a a liberation practice by which impoverished peoples were able to engage the world, first build their own community, and, get, and then engage all of those structures that they now understood was keeping them in a particular condition. So San Miguelito flourished and was uh, attracted a lot of attention. Um, internationally, especially within like-minded individuals, clergy, women religious, lay missionaries in the Catholic Church and outside of it as well. San Miguelito was the model for the community of San Pablo in Managua, which adapted that what now became a program known as the Family of God to found their own community. That community was then the inspiration for what is perhaps one of the most famous communities known for their praxis of liberation theology, which was the Our Lady of Solentiname mm. in Nicaragua. These three communities all produced their own vernacular mass. Mm. One was modeled for the other, and then Solentiname's mass was informed by Managua's. Um, so we see a kind of uh, a line of transmission through the movement of a particular kind of expressive culture that reached a climax in their own individual communal vernacular mass. And so what I've looked at is the role of singing in these liberation communities, that singing itself was integral, not as an ornament or as a secondary feature. We see it in the catechism itself, the manual, that the meetings included singing at the end. In between Vatican II and the inception of liberation theology, or let's say the publication of Gutierrez's first book, 
was uh, the conference of the Latin American Bishops' Council in Medellin, Colombia, in 1968. They were charged with applying Vatican II to Latin America. And what they did is they adapted it for what was needed. And what they looked at was poverty, justice. They looked at political violence. They affirmed a number of things, including what is known as the base church community or the Comunidad Eclesial de Base, which was essentially the formation within a parish or a Christian community of small groups that met to discuss um, the gospel. They also, the bishops, also affirmed what was known as awareness raising, concientización. Both of these, both awareness raising as a, as a process by which, let's say, individuals achieve a critical awakening of, of their world, connected to, again, um, a reflection on the Gospels mm. or Christian teachings in general. Both of these elements were already present in the Catechism of the Family of God, which had been developing since the mid-50s, before it was taken to Panama, then to Managua, then to Solentiname, and then elsewhere. Part of that Catechism and part of, in general, um, awareness-raising might find its origins in uh, the young Christian workers' movement uh, in Europe and their method known as the Sea Judge Act method. You see part of it in the catechism as well. So the, the individual who's from outside the community facilitating a meeting uh, is first discerns what is happening in that meeting, the conversation, um, and doesn't do anything until they have gone through seeing, judging, and then they move forward. This is part of uh, what is at play in the catechism of the family of God and what is fundamental to, I think, um, what I've seen and what I've heard former clergy in Managua talk about uh, those meetings. This might also be familiar as a, a kind of Aristotelian dialogue as well. So um, this has been really uh, insightful, and I'd love to hear what areas of academic interest you foresee yourself pursuing moving forward? My most recent project came about as a result of a grant I received uh, from the University of California's Critical Mission Studies project, which sought and continues to seek to rewrite the history of the California missions from the Native perspective. And my grant was to study the mission bells and to initiate and build ties to a native community in California. And that community is the Amamutsun tribal band of central California. Uh, the Amamutsun, a few years ago, initiated uh, a movement to remove what are known as the El Camino Real bell markers, which dot the highways and roads that connect uh, the California missions and many other public and private um, spaces in California. But these um, particular markers, which are replica mission bells on posts or hanging from posts that resemble a shepherd's crook, are at least for the ones uh, that dot the freeways, the highways, and roads in between the missions are maintained by the state. And the Amamutsun state that these are not benign symbols, but ones that celebrate the fraught and violent history that the California missions represent. 
So my project uh, connects um, the sounds of mission bells to the modern-day proliferation of mission bell symbols throughout California as uh, expressions or representations of state identity and heritage. So I connect sights and sounds of mission bells in California as attached to native history, as attached to what the Amamutsen charge are triggers of generational trauma. And not just for the Amamutsen, but for many other native communities in California. This project has, in a way, allowed me to think about sound and race in the early modern period. The bells themselves, I look at not necessarily to situate a history of bells. That's been done. I'm looking at the missions as material vestiges, material histories of Spanish colonization, of Spanish concentration or reducción, as programs of um, concentrating native peoples under Spanish control, under a missionary control by which they were then uh, Christianized or went through Christianization and also obligatory labor in producing for the colony. So I look at that environment as a sensory environment. Um, so concentration or colonization, not so much as, let's say, as an abstract notion, but one uh, that is centered on sensory reorganization for Native peoples. This is primarily uh, one of the things that um, the missions uh, attempted to uh, accomplish. And the bells were crucial and calculated tools of that program. Uh, without the bells, you don't have your, let's say, ancient communication device, Western communication device, by which you signal to a mass population where they should be, where they should go, when they should worship. Um, and this essentially marked missionary enterprises throughout the American continent, but especially in California, where um, the mission period did not last very long. Uh, it saw a dramatic and um, a horrific demographic collapse of Native peoples held at the missions that only got worse into... Uh, the U.S. period, though I must also say that the Spanish then ceded California to uh, the Mexican Empire, and then Mexico um, ultimately uh, lost that region in the Mexican-American War of the late 1840s. So I look at the bells, and I look at, um, I study sound, and the way bells, uh, at least within a Western Christian tradition, uh, were also symbolically understood to be voices, Voices of the Preacher, um, as William of Durand uh, tells us in the 13th century. And how this knowledge, this understanding of bells is not only signaling time and space or movement, but also how that it ultimately um, weaves itself into indigenous knowledge in California. So I'm looking at that, but also looking to expand uh, a study of sound in the early modern Iberian world. So uh, next, I'm going to be looking at the coro within Spanish or Ibero-American cathedral. Spanish and Spanish colonial cathedrals uh, were different than other European cathedrals for a number of, uh, of reasons, but particularly because it, within the central nave, of Spanish and Spanish colonial cathedrals, you had what was known as an architectural feature called the chorus or coro, uh, made up of three high walls, an enclosure within the cathedral's enclosure that faced 
the main altar. It was only open, though it was separated by, let's say, a rood screen. And within that enclosure, you had the entire cathedral chapter for worship or observance. And you had all of your musicians there as well. That space was exclusive and privileged. That space was uh, homosocial. And what we have is a concentration of power. We have the concentration uh, or where the central mediation of the Word of God took place. This is where we heard both Gregorian chant and where we heard polyphony. This is where we heard within a liturgical context, within the Liturgy of the Hours, we would hear also the Biancico, which was the most common uh, musical genre for in the vernacular. Long before vernacular masses, the Biancico was a, let's say, um, a sung poetic form in Spanish that had been adopted by the church in the 16th century and exported to the colonies. And this is where, in this homosocial environment, we hear the echoes of alien voices, of minoritized peoples from throughout um, the colony, from throughout the Iberian world. This is where we hear constructed voices of Africans, of Indians, of regional um, individuals from the Iberian Peninsula, where we hear intellectual pretenders, where we hear French and, Ita and Italian interlopers sing in praise of God in these theatrical settings. So my work in sound and colonization, or sound and race, sound in the early modern Ibero-American world, will begin with the bells in the California missions and move on to this exclusive space within the Spanish cathedral. I'm also working on other, let's say, um, soundscapes within this particular um, part of, uh, let's say, uh, the uh, early modern uh, world. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Gordillo. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And I look forward to seeing how your work progresses and continues here at the ISM. Thank you, Ben. Likewise. For more information on the ISM Fellows Program, please visit ism.yale.edu forward slash fellowships. Please join us again for more episodes of ISM Fellows in Conversation.